Well, let's pray. Good morning. Lord, what a privilege to sit before your word and to lean on you. All of us lean on you. We don't put our trust in the preacher. We put our trust in the God of the word to come now and to bless us. And Lord, we thank you for the cross. And not only that the cross is a past place of objective substitution and atonement, but it is a present place of subjective execution the execution of our self-reliance, the execution of our love affair with ourselves and other men and the praises of men. Lord, we have a heart, we have a, a, an innate desire to praise, so help us to glut that desire by praising you this morning, by lifting you on high, by giving you honor and glory. Receive praise. Come, we pray, Holy Spirit, as we lean on you. To be helped. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, what if I suppose that I told you this morning that I have exactly $1,440 here in my pocket? $1,440 exactly. As you know, it's a pretty rare day when I have less than 1000 just kind of sitting around in my pocket. <laughs> But this morning, I have $1,440. Now, let's say that, let's just suppose that I decided to give you, somebody in here, this $1,440. Sound pretty good? Give that to you. You can have that. Only thing is, I just have one, I just have one thing. Let's make a deal together. Let's do something. If I'm going to give you... $1,440, then you have to do something for me. Let's say that I decide to give you this every day, a fresh $1,440. Here's the, here's the catch, though. You have to give me 20 bucks of that back every day. You've got to spend 20 bucks of it on me. I'll give you the, the $1,440, but you've got to give me 20 bucks back. My guess is most of you wouldn't say, Oh, uh, you know, man, if I got to give you 20 bucks back, nah, no deal. I bet you all of you would say, all right, that's a good deal. And you would head right down to Kohl's <laughs> and you'd pick me up a, a shirt for 19 bucks, 19.99. Or maybe if you're generous, you would go to Target and get me a few, maybe a couple of shirts. Maybe you'd even spend more than 20, 30 bucks sometimes. Or if you're feeling really generous one day because you had been receiving 1440 bucks every day, maybe you'd go out and just splurge and, you know, give me 200 bucks or something just as a kind of a token of appreciation. Now, here's the deal. Do you believe that every minute of every day is a gift from God? Do you believe that time is something that God gives to you freely? I mean, God doesn't have to give you another minute. He doesn't have to give you another breath. He gives you these precious minutes of your day. 
But do you realize that God gives you every single day 1,440 minutes? Every day. Do you think it's too much for God to ask you to spend 20 of that on him? Do you think it's too much for God to say, would you just spend, you know, 20 minutes of that time with me and just thank me and have a relationship with me? Is that too much to ask? Well, it would seem that for some of us, that's too much to ask because many of us will say, you know, see, my day is just so full. I, 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 you know, I've used up all my time. I, I don't have any more time today. What? I mean, that would be like me giving you the money and that $1,440 and, and you saying, you taking and saying, oh, man, I'm so sorry. I, man, I spent it all. You know, I, I didn't. Uh, I, you know, I didn't have enough to pay you back or give you any money back. And I would say, what? It was a gift. It started as a gift. You see, when you put it in those terms, it sounds pretty ridiculous, doesn't it? So, you see, sometimes you have to take something and throw it into the absurd to make the point. And. and we hear that, and we say in ourselves, you say, yeah, that sounds ridiculous, but I, w- I wonder, what does your time with God really look like? And that might be a very challenging question for some of us this morning. Well, we're continuing our series this morning in the book of Psalms, and we've started a series, we're continuing a series called When God is Enough, and we're going through real-life issues in the Psalms. We're talking about things like guilt and envy we've addressed things like depression and in the next few weeks we're going to talk about addictions we're going to talk about fear we're going to talk about loneliness we're going to talk about aging we're going to deal with these emotions some of them are problematic in the psalms and each of these are real issues for us they they hit us where we're at um they they hit close to home but this morning we're going to look at something that we all face yet something that's not so obvious to us um, something that sneaks, on, sneaks up on us over time. And it's something that I think our youth are particularly susceptible to. Psalm 119 is where we're at. Um, Jason just read that for us. And, and, and what we'll discover in Psalm 19 is the temptation that we all face to wander away from God and to forget his word. Now, I've prepared this message with our youth in mind. But I think that you'll see as we get into the text, the supreme relevance of this text for all of us. Um, Here's what God wants to alert us to in this passage. He wants to warn us of the fact that we are prone. We have a tendency to forget God's word and wander away from him. That's the clarion call this morning is don't wander away from God and don't forget his word. That's what he wants to warn us to this morning. And so he paints for us a vivid and glorious picture in here in Psalm 119 of what it means to live by the word of God. What it means to experience God as you spend time with him in his word. So that's where we're going to go this morning. We're going to look at what a life in the word is like. What is it like to live 
a life centered on the word of God. I have two points this morning. My second point is my conclusion. So the bulk of the message is the first point. Two points. First, a life in the word is a life of discipline. And then as a conclusion, a life in the word is a life of blessing. First, a life of discipline. It all starts with verse 9. Look at the text. How can, how can a young man keep his way pure? The psalmist uses a question and answer format. He says, how can a young man, how can a person, how can a Christian keep his way pure? Why do you suppose he's asking that question? What's his concern? Well, certainly in verse 10 and 16, it's clear that he doesn't want to wander from God. And then in verse 16, he doesn't want to forget his word. But I think there's more. I think he has something else in mind. I mean, he just wrote verses 1 through 3. Look at 1 through 3. Now, you should note that verses 1 through 3 are the only verses in the entire psalm that are directed to us specifically. You know, this whole psalm is a prayer to God. Every verse is a prayer to God. Um, In fact, just as a point of uh, interest for some of you, you know, those who have struggled to pray and really pursue God and you have a hard time praying, many people have found a lot of help in reading Psalm 119 and using that for prayer. Many people have found prayer to be rekindled in their reading of Psalm 119. So can I commend for you this morning um, the practice of using Psalm 119 to pray through, to help you in your prayer life? Well, back to verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure? Why does he ask that question? What's he after? Well, verses 1 through 3, they give us the answer. What does he say? Verse 1, blessed are those whose way is blameless. Look at verse 2. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies. See, the psalmist understood something. What he understood was he said, oh, I see. A person whose way is pure is blessed by God. A person who is pure is blessed by God. And and if that's the case, then the psalmist is saying, then how can I keep my way pure because I want to be blessed by God? You see the flow there? People that are pure are blessed. Therefore, the most pressing question then is, how can I be pure? Anybody here say, I don't want to be blessed by God? Is that anybody's heart this morning? Well, hearing the responses, I assume that you all clearly want to be blessed by God. Do you see that in the text? Now, most scholars think here when he says, how can a young man, verse 9, when he says young man, he's actually speaking of himself. The psalmist is saying, how can, I, how can I keep my way pure? And that's the pressing question, not only for the psalmist, but for all of us this morning. And that's the pressing question for you as youth. If you're a young person here this morning, that's the pressing question for you. How can you keep your way pure? No one at your school is asking that question. No one is asking that question. In fact, I'd be safe to say that really outside of the few Christians that are there, no one even gives a rip about that question. They don't care about that. Keep my way pure. I mean, what a joke. Walk through the hallway sometime and talk about purity. See what kind of responses you get. I mean, even the word itself is embarrassing at school. Even the language of purity is embarrassing. Am I right? Am I right about that? Purity is so weird. 
I mean, who talks about purity today? That's strange. That's strange language. Now, just look at the way your friends dress at school. Listen to what they talk about. Is purity, do you think purity is a, is a big deal for them? No, purity is probably the last thing on their minds. And as moms and dads, we need to be aware of this. We need to realize the environment that our children are in, and we need to pray for them. Do you pray for your kids? Do you just let them off at school, or do you pray, God, protect them? This is a dangerous environment in many ways. This is no indictment of public schools. We're happy for our parents to send their kids to public schools. The, The question is, though, you must pray for them. You must pray for them. You drop your kids off, and it's a war zone. It's, it's amazing the kind of stuff that takes place, the conversations. You know, there's a time when girls used to dress for beauty. They used to dress for the sake of beauty, but now they dress for the sake of lust. Look at the girls in the world. Look how they dress. And girls, I want to say something to you. I mean, if you're a high school girl, you're here. I I know that you are faced with a particular temptation to believe that you're not beautiful until some guy comes along and makes you feel like you are. You know what that is? That easily can lead into a form of serious slavery and bondage. I know you don't want that. But your temptation will be to dress in such a way so as to draw the attention of guys. I mean, you, you, you feel like you have to have it. You know, you, you, you need their affirmation. Dear friend, listen, please don't misunderstand me. I, I, I want you to look nice, and that's fine. But the question for you this morning is, where is your identity found? Where is your identity found? Has beauty become an idol for you? Teenage girl, has beauty become an idol for you? Test yourself. See, in America, this is for all of us here, parents. In America, the false gods of beauty and power and money and achievement have achieved almost, almost mythical proportions. And, And we may not physically kneel before a sculpture of Aphrodite, which was the goddess of beauty, But our young girls are driven into depression and eating disorders by an obsessive concern over their body image. And so, in effect, in effect, they prostrate themselves before Aphrodite Monday through Friday. Dads, look out for your daughters. Tell them they are beautiful while you redefine what beauty is. Help them navigate the channels of their heart. Dads, shepherd your daughters through their definition of beauty. Open the Bible with them and use it as your guide. The fact is the world is already teaching them. The question is, are you? Are you teaching them? (laughs) You know, you think about this. The question is, if we're not teaching them, they are. And you don't want some punk kid at high school going up to your daughter who would be quite happy to define for her what he thinks beauty is. And your daughter will be tempted to be drawn away when these guys come up to her. Some Justin Bieber-like guy comes up and says, this is what beauty is. 
You know, they, they say they, they want to come up and redefine it, and they want to say, you know what beauty is? Sexy is beautiful. That's what they say. And that kid that comes up and he says that and he believes that, he doesn't say that because he's full of chivalry and valor. He says that because he's full of lust. So the question is, what are you guys living for? What is it that gives you meaning in life? There you are. You're at school. Some of you all have just started high school. And I know how, what, how nightmarish that can be. When you make a transition, some of you from um, Heritage Christian School or homeschooling to high school, and you get into high school, all of a sudden you're like, are you serious? Like, what is this? I mean, it's a, it's a radical move. And I know some of you have having, are having a hard time, and you're feeling the temptation and the pressure already. I mean, because you feel like already I don't fit in here. And I gotta find a way to fit in. I gotta find a way to navigate myself to get in so that I can be somebody here at this place. And, and Satan is working on you and, and he's gonna tempt you. And so you must ask yourself the question what are you living for? What are you centering your life around? I look, I don't know what it is about youth these days, but let me just speak real frankly and directly with, with you guys. I don't know what it is about youth, but it seems like. Y'all are just switching your identities all the time. I mean, I had a conversation with somebody not too long ago who was talking about uh, themselves, and they were, they were talking about how they wanted to change their identity because they weren't happy with their previous identity. I mean, it just seems like y'all are just switching, going in and out of different identities. I mean, not so much here I don't, at our church, but what I mean is in general, youth in general. I mean, think about this. It's, 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 it's a bit crazy. So many brands of kids. question is, what's your brand? Skater kids, punk rockers, dark gothic kids, smart kids, vampire witchcraft, occultic kids, jocks, indie rockers, popular preppy kids, rich kids, loners, whatever. There's a brand, and you're trying to fit in one of those brands. And I sit back, and I watch youth today and I see these, and I see kids just keep switching identities. It's like, what happened to being emo? Like emo, emo's not cool anymore. And and you know, you got some really good mileage out of that one for a while, but you want to be a scene kid because oh, and there's a big difference. And oh, you want to let everyone know you're not emo, you're scene. I mean, how how pathetic have we become? It's not that these styles are bad necessarily. It's just that you, when you begin to just navigate your whole life around them, they just begin to take over. Here's a general rule of thumb. If you have to get up two hours before, before school starts on a Monday so you can wash and blow dry your hair and use volume spray and rat it and tease it until it looks like a mushroom and then flat iron it out because it's too big and then put some wax on the tips of your hair to make it look more sleek and spiky so that your part will stay you're spending entirely too much time in fact the thing is you have to ask yourself the question what is driving this why am i spending two hours to get this just right what identity am i trying to fit with it's become all-encompassing for you in fact, in some senses, you're a slave to it. You're, you're desperately trying to find your identity in something other than Christ. And it doesn't last. 
I mean, it does not last. It will not satisfy. It won't fix your problems. Is that style really going to save you from depression? Is that going to help you when you're lonely or when you're sick or when you're broken or when you're tired? It's a hoax. It's a lie. And it's the same problem with all idols. They always overpromise and they underdeliver. You can go after it. You can hope that's going to fix it. You can get that style. You can look like a scenester. You can have the whole deal. And your parents can be cool with it. It's not going to help you. It's not going to fix your problems. It's not going to meet you where you need to be met. Well, just, that's just the word pure. It's just springboarding off the word pure. I mean, so much needs to be said. Um, in fact, it would be great if we could come back to this and really do a whole series of talks on cultural idolatry and deal with it head on through the scriptures and, and deal with this because the question for us is how can a young man keep his way pure? Well, here's the deal with Psalm 119. These verses are basically saying if you hope to be blessed by God, if you want to be blessed by God, then you have to be pure. What this text is saying, if you're going to be pure, then you have to guard your life according to God's word which means ultimately you have to have Jesus Christ, all right? It starts with Christ. And and, and so this question and answer framework in verse 9 is set up with how can a young man keep his way, and he answers it. Now, assuming you're a Christian this morning, assuming that you have trusted in Christ, how can a young man keep his way pure? Answer, verse 9, by guarding it according to the word. The answer is by centering your life. On the word. You see, the psalmist wants to be blessed. He not only wants to keep from wandering away from God, but he wants to be positively blessed by God. And isn't that what you want this morning? Ask yourself that question. Deep down inside, is that not what you want for your life to be blessed by God? And if it is, then you'll have to live a disciplined life. It doesn't happen just by accident. Just because your parents are Christians doesn't mean that you're going to live a pure life. A life in the word is a life of discipline, and a Christian is a person who is learning to bring every area of his life into absolute subjection to the lordship of Christ. And to illustrate this, the psalmist, he uses this great metaphor here in Psalm 119 of the body. He identifies four parts of the human anatomy, four parts of the body, the heart, the mind, the mouth, and the eyes. And so a disciplined life, a life built on the word, is a life that expresses itself in submission to God in these four areas. The heart, the mind, the mouth, and the eyes. I just want to kind of walk through those. First, the heart, verse 10. The heart. What does he say? Verse 10. With my whole heart, I seek you. How many of us could sincerely say that this morning? With my whole heart, I seek you. The psalmist is giving all his heart to the pursuit of God. Look at verse 11. I have stored up your word in my heart so that I might not sin against you. It's as if he's saying, if I can get in the scripture into my heart, then what will happen is I will keep from sin. His focus is on getting God's word into his heart. Now, the word heart here is the idea of the very core of a person's being. This is the 
This is the, the deepest recesses of a person. Um, it's the mission control center. It's the very core where you make decisions and, and life happens. And the psalmist is saying, I have stored up your word in my heart in the center of my being so that when I make decisions, guess what? I make them in light of the word. That, that's really what he's saying. I, I make them in light of your word. And let me ask you this morning. Have you flooded the core of your being with Scripture? Have you flooded your heart with Scripture? I mean, is it deep down inside you? When Jesus was in the wilderness, how did he defeat the devil? Scripture memory. Scripture memory. Jesus recited Deuteronomy verbatim. He just pulled it out and recited it. Jesus memorized Scripture, and and so should we. We should memorize scripture. You know, you can say, it's funny, uh, we, we say a lot as adults, we say, you know, I can't, I've tried so hard to memorize scripture, I can't memorize scripture. These kids can memorize scripture. I mean, they're young, they're sprighty, they're, man, they can memorize it, but I'm older, I can't memorize scripture, it's not going to happen, and you just give up. Let me give you a little test this morning. Just give you a little test. Let's use the money illustration again. Let's say I pulled the money out, and I said to you, all right, tell you what, I will give you a $1,000 for every verse you memorize by the end of this week. Thousand bucks. Every verse you memorize. You memorize one, you're already half, you know, halfway to a new computer, new laptop. You memorize three, you get an apple. You memorize ten, hey, you got a nice used car. Look, it's just a week. That's like one a day, a little bit older than one a day. You memorize thirty. And you can buy any, any one of about 20 used older houses in, in Owensboro. All right? Now, here's the deal. You think you could do it? Could you do it? Yeah, of course you could do it. You could do it because money would motivate you. But the Bible says your word, oh God, is more important to me than my necessary food. The Bible says more than more than silver or much fine gold. The word of God is more costly than silver and even much fine gold. So will you exchange? Will you say, and you say, well, money, this is just so tangible. I can see it. I can count it. So if you're going to say a thousand, I'll, I'll go for that. But then, but then is the Bible not real to you? Is it not that tangible where you say, look, this is more than money. This is more precious to me than that cash. Oh, I mean, our hearts, this tests us, doesn't it? People of God, this tests us. This tests me. I'm feeling tested right now. I'm being challenged by God's word. And this isn't just for youth, but guys, think about it. You go to high school, how are you going to survive? If this isn't important to you, I mean, what's in your heart? What what are you going to combat the devil with? How are you going to fight? And as Christians, how are we going to fight? Jesus memorized scripture. We can do it. We can do it. He set the example for us. So life in the word is a life of discipline. And that discipline is first a discipline of the heart. Devotion to God is the issue. I read that illustration, that test, by the way, um, in a book called The Divine Conspiracy by Dallas Willard. Um, and it's just really challenging. I read it this week. Second thing is this, the mind, verse 12. <clears throat> the mind. Blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes. So we talked about the heart. Here's the mind. The key word here is submission. 
If the key word in the last verse was devotion and internalization of the word, key word here is submission. It's all about the mind. The mind's in focus. It's a posture of learning. The psalmist not only comes with his heart to the Lord, but he comes with his mind. Now think about this. He, he doesn't come as a critic who sits above the word of God, judging the word of God. No, he comes as a student, as a pupil sitting under the word of God. Teach me. He says, teach me. Teach me, O Lord. To the young, to the youth, let me give you an application here to think about. Um, Let me challenge you with your posture toward God's word. Um, I challenge you a little bit with regard to scripture memory, but let me challenge you as Christian young people. Let me challenge you with your posture to God's word. Are you eager to, to sit under God's word? Do you find yourself eager to learn from God? Are, are you eager to hear from him? Are you eager to read his word? Or what about the way you listen to preaching on Sundays? I mean, that, that's, a, that's another really good thing to, to talk about and explore. I mean, some of you might be prone to what, you know, what we could call selective hearing. You know, I, like, I really like that guy. I like his preaching because he's really funny or he tells really funny things or he's really passionate or he's really loud or whatever. I like the way that guy preaches. But guys, let me remind us that it's not about the preacher. It's about God's word. I mean, it's always been about God's word. It's about, I mean, you remember that when we come here on Sundays, it's about God's word. As long as it's being faithfully taught and open, then we have a responsibility to listen. Not only a responsibility, but the privilege of that. I mean, can you imagine people who died to get the Bible translated in English, people who laid down their lives for this, and yet, and yet we just sit here so lackadaisical, like, oh, here we go, another sermon. I'm just going to listen to another sermon. And, and God, as we come and we, not, we don't think about the fact that people bled for this. There are people that could say to you, I can still smell the burning flesh of my relative who died for that. So what's our posture to the word? I mean, the preacher may not be funny. He may not be entertaining, but that's not what it's about. It's about God speaking to you, and that is an awesome thing. That is a privilege for you. Don't take for granted the opportunity you have week in and week out to read and, and to hear God's word preached. So that's the heart and the mind. Heart and the mind. Now, what about the mouth? Verse 13. What about the mouth? With my lips, I declare all the rules of your mouth. So if we had devotion and internalization and, and, and we have submission, the key word here is proclamation. Proclamation, God's word is best obeyed in the context of a life where it's spoken. I mean, think about this. You know, you get into a context where God's word is being spoken, where it's being taught, where it's being sung, where it's being witnessed. That's the church. That's what happens Sunday in and Sunday out. You know what holds my feet to the fire more than anything around here is the fact that I'm in a covenant relationship, not only with God, but with you. So that what I speak is what I need to be living. And that's what it is for all of us. I mean, if you come and you speak certain things and you talk big, the question is, do you live that way? People know that. I mean, 
being in a covenant relationship with each other. This is a context where the word of God is spoken, it's sung, it's witnessed, it's talked about. And here's the, here's the, here's the point here. The more we speak the word to each other, the more we'll start to obey it. Or do we have a habit of speaking the word to each other? Do we impart grace to one another? Do we speak the word to each other? Um, you know, so you think about here the importance of, of just biblical fellowship at church. You know, intentional conversations, driving each other to Jesus, not talking about the sports page first conversation, not talking about the iPhone first conversation, but not talking about shopping or what you got or the kids necessarily, talking about Christ, encouraging one another, intentionally encouraging each other. We're to provoke one another toward love and good deeds. We're all called to be conduits of the word of God so that the more you fellowship with others over this book, the more you'll start to love God. And that, that's what it's intended to happen. We fellowship over this, and we fall in love with God. So the question is, is your mouth disciplined? Young people, do you have a disciplined mouth? What comes out of your mouth? Is it disciplined? You know, you think about, let, let's let, as a church, healing and grace flow from our lips. As young people, let's not tear each other down with our words. You know, as a church, as a whole, let's not gossip with our words. Let's not criticize with our words. Let's not complain and murmur. But as a congregation, let's build up. Let's edify one another. Let's identify evidences of grace. And friends, use our mouths as a source of healing. Life and death is in the power of the tongue. So what do you do with your tongue? Are we building one another up? Are you finding someone to encourage do you make it a practice to really build one another up in the, in the, with your tongue? Or what comes out? Is it criticism that comes out and complaints that come out? Oh, may God help us as pastors and members alike to, to heal with our mouths. Let this be a healing context. Let it be said of Heritage Baptist Church. Let, let someone say of us, I don't know everything that goes on in that place, but man, that's a place of healing and grace and refreshment. Man, I love that place. I just feel so healed and so helped and so encouraged and so hungry for God when I step out of there. I mean, my heart beats for this as a pastor. Friends, my heart beats for this. And and we can get there. We can get there. Let me just say a word to parents here. Parents, teach your children. Teach your children how to do this. Sit your kids down before the event, whatever the event is. Boom. Sit them down and say to them, all right, why are we going to the event? What, what are we doing? We're going to glorify God. What are we going to do at the event? We're going to serve. We're going to find someone to serve. All right, that's what we're going to the event for. We're going to serve. We're going to reach out. We're going to look for those who may be lonely, and we're going to minister to them. So that Labor Day picnic doesn't just become a time to go and set myself free. No, But it's building value, the value of what we're doing as a church into our children, you see? And isn't it beautiful to see kids serving others? Isn't isn't that so encouraging when you see that? They they go to the event, and what do you see them doing? They're they're setting up chairs, and they're tearing down. I love to see kids do that, setting up and tearing down afterwards. They're reaching out. Now, obviously, there's no perfect children, so parents, don't set your standard on perfection. But, But listen, labor. Labor for your kids. Labor to instill a big vision. Get in their lives and talk with them about the purpose of these events. Give them a vision. Don't just carry them to the events and set them free. 
God, your children, lead them. Dads, you are the vision bearer for your family. You're responsible for bearing the vision of the church and God's glory to your family. That's your job. That you, you take ownership of that. <clears throat> take that as a great responsibility. And, <clears throat> you know, if, if the kids don't do it, we can't blame them because we're not install, instilling and installing that vision within them. I mean, it's us. We have to disciple our sons and daughters and dads. That's our job primarily. We have to disciple our kids. We have to build faith for what God has for them. So then parents, after the meeting, after the event, what do you do? You just leave it? No, you follow up with them. You, you, what do you do? You go to them, you say, all right. Um, you say, what did you do? Who did you minister to? How did you serve? Who did you go up to? What did you talk to them about? Who, who is the lonely person that you prayed for, that you ministered to? What chairs did you pick up? How did you serve and help? And, and you know what you do? You commend your kids for those godly attributes that you see in them. You say, buddy, I'm so proud of you for picking up those chairs and serving Christ and, and acting like um, uh, honoring Jesus with the way that you spent your time. I'm so proud of you for going up to Miss so-and-so and just patting her on the shoulder and saying, I'm praying for you. I'm so encouraged that you did that, son. And, and you commend him for that, not winning six games of volleyball. I mean, great, and commend him for volleyball, but not, I mean, if that's all we're doing, then what are we doing? What kind of vision are we installing with our kids? So here's the thing. This is not, not meant to be hard or harsh. This is meant to say, look, here's a great picture. What I'm doing is I'm painting a picture saying that as a church, we can move there. We can get to a place where we can install that kind of vision with our kids and, and let people come here and say, you know what? One thing I see here is healing out of the mouth. I, I, I get a lot of healing. The, there's, there's language of grace. Evidences of grace are being identified. Our kids are serving. We, we're loving God. We're encouraging one another. We're building each other up. And God says, I can give that to you. You can have that. As a church, we can have that. Families, we can have that. Dads, we can have that. Moms, we can have that. Kids, we can have that. So let's not feel this as just conviction only. Let's see it as a vision for the future. And we're not there now, but we can get there. We'll just help each other. We'll help each other get there and move in that direction. All right? So there we go. The heart, the mind, the mouth, and finally the eyes. The eyes, verse 15. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. The key word here is meditation. This is a lost art, isn't it? Anybody meditate lately? <laughs> it's hard enough to memorize scripture. You know, it's really hard to meditate. Because um, here's the deal with meditation. Um, <clears throat> it's essential. You, you can't not meditate. So here's the question. If you meditate in life, what are you meditating on if it's not the word? And what's that doing to you? What, you just, you're just doing it. You're just, it's, just, it's just going over. You're mulling it over in your mind. Probably something unhelpful. Probably something morose or sad or discouraging. Or maybe it's a, it's, you're bitter with somebody. You're upset with somebody. And you, just, you meditate on that thing. You turn that thing over and over and over. Or it's that girl you're thinking about at school. Man, you just you just think about her all the time, you know, and it was that boy or whatever, and you just you just meditate and meditate and meditate. It comes to the word, just no meditation. 
just flat. Just read it and move on. This is a major problem for us. But I wanted to say up front before this message that this message is meant to be a corrective. So if you're like, man, I just feel like you're beating up on it. That's what it's meant to do because that's what Psalm 119 is doing for us. Psalm 119 is correcting us. So I'm going to comfort you at the end, but just hold on, okay? <laughs> we, need, we need this kind of correction. Meditation, here it is. Um, the Puritan Thomas Watson defines it this way. He says, meditation is a sacred exercise of the mind. Listen carefully. A sacred exercise of the mind whereby we bring the truths of God to remembrance, the truths of God to remembrance, and seriously, not playfully, seriously ponder them and apply them to ourselves. Edmund Calamy wrote, another Puritan, True meditation is when a man, this is beautiful, when a man dwells on Christ until his heart is inflamed with the love of Christ. He goes on to say, or when a man dwells on the truths of God until he's transformed by those truths. Or when a man dwells on sin until his heart hates it. (laughs) That's great. That's great stuff. This is what it means to fix our eyes on God's ways. By reading the Bible, if we read the Bible without meditation, that's empty and useless. What, what, are we, what are we getting out of it? What profit? See, meditation is what produces affection. I don't love God. I don't feel that affection in my heart. Meditation is what produces it. You sit and you meditate and you think and you ponder and you turn it over and over. And it begins to produce affection for God. And by it, we are transformed. See, the reason why we come away so cold after reading God's word, you say, I just read every day and it just seems so cold and lifeless. One of the major reasons for that is that we're not warming ourselves at the fire of meditation. Just read the word and then you move on. No warming yourself at the stove of meditation. We don't do that because I think probably more than likely we're mentally lazy. We, 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 see, we don't think hard. But, if, friends, if we let mental laziness get in the way, we won't be transformed by the Word of God. I want to be transformed. You want to be transformed. So let's discipline our minds. Dwell on God's Word and God's ways until the fire of your heart begins to burn. Meditation is a lost art. Here's the irony for, for me as I was thinking about this. Um, we, we want to know God, but we don't meditate. Isn't that a bit strange? I mean, if you really want to get to know somebody, what do you have to do? Just talk to them? No, you have to listen. You have to listen to them. See, we talk a lot, and some of us even pray regularly. And you say, Pastor John, I pray a lot. Um, So why the stress on meditation? I mean, I talk to God a lot. I'm praying a lot. The question isn't, are you praying? The question is, are you listening to God? The question is, are you listening to him? Reading and meditating on the Bible is our time to listen to him. When does God, when does God get our attention? Did God just create us and say, hey, you talk to me when you want to, but you don't need to listen to me? When, when does God get to, when do, when do we listen to God? When, when does that happen? Can you imagine having a relationship with someone who never listened to you? It's terrible. It's just absolutely terrible. There's no way. I mean, just imagine having a relationship where the other person literally never listened to you. 
I mean, as soon as every time you're about to speak, they say, no, 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 let me say something. Some of you saying that? That's what my spouse does. <laughs> but friends, we can't have a relationship with God without reading and meditating. You can't. Remember those old phones where, you know, you had an earpiece on top and you could unscrew it? You imagine calling somebody up on that phone, and as soon as, and as, soon as they call, you unscrew that top part and you just talk to them. <laughs> you just talk and you know, hey. But think about this. We do this with God. We pray all the time. We want to pray and talk to God, but when do we want to listen to God? And what I'm saying here is that you don't really listen to God if you're just reading. You listen somewhat. You're kind of halfway listening. But see, meditation is when you say, God, I'm serious. I I stop. I want to tell you that I'm serious about your word. I believe that you want to speak to me, and I want to sit here, and I want to mull this over because I want to be transformed. I want to hear what you have to say to me. Meditation. So we discipline our eyes. All right, so we've been talking about a life of discipline in the word, and we've talked about the discipline of the heart. With all my heart, I seek you. Your word have I hid in my heart. We talked about the discipline of the mind. Teach me your statutes. We talked about the discipline of the mouth. With my lips, I declare the rules of your mouth. And we talk about the discipline of the eyes. I meditate on your precepts. And notice the language, I fix my eyes on your ways. That's what a life in the word is like. It's a life of discipline. Now, does that characterize your life? Back to the youth. Hey, guys, does that characterize your life? Do you have a life in the word? Are you saturated with the word? Are you soaked in the word? Are you spending time with God like that? Francis Chan says, our greatest fear, listen up, youth, this is for you. Our, Francis Chan says, our greatest fear should not be failure but succeeding at things in life that don't matter. Now, that's a really timely word for American youth. Really timely. I mean, just look around and see what your friends are doing with their time. You know, you're living with a generation of kids that have, that have become experts at spending time on things that don't matter. Alex and Brett Harris, Christian leaders of the revolution, said, Our culture tells us it doesn't matter how we spend the teen years. They tell us that this is the time to have fun. But we've been trained to believe something false. See, everyone is busy living out their priorities, including your friends at school. Go to school uh, on Monday, and what you'll see is a guy and a girl who's living out their priorities. The only question is, is it God or is it an idol? That's it. Two choices. What is it for you? Is it Christ Or are you worshiping false saviors of beauty and popularity and acceptance and approval? What's driving you? What's moving you? Guys, let me, you gotta ask yourself the hard questions. What am I living for? Really seriously, what am I living for? What am I doing with my life? Don't just float. Don't float. Don't be jellyfish. Swim against the tide and say, I'm gonna live for Jesus. Here's my challenge to you as a youth, as a young person. Turn off the TV. Unplug the computer and get on your face. You need this. You desperately need this. Hide your cell phone if you have to. Texting, 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 texting all day. Just text, text, text. Text. Just text. Does God get a text every once in a while? 
I mean, seriously, when are you going to text God and say, God, I want to get not only in your text, but I want to text you and I want to have a relationship with you. God's not important. It's just fundamentally not important. So we set the Bible down and we say, look, I don't mean to disrespect the Bible or God or anything, but for all intents and purposes, close it, leave it on the shelf. I don't care. He's going to text my friends because they're more important than God. That's what you're saying. I mean, think about it. That's what we say. And I want to say to you, get the Bible open. Don't waste your years on things that don't matter. Most of those people you're texting right now, you will not even talk to in 10 years. Ask, ask your parents that. Ask your friends that who are older. Look, I don't know anybody from high school anymore. There's one guy that I know. I saw him two years ago. I'm serious. Nate Pagan. Good guy. But he's the only guy I really remember, and I saw him a couple years ago, and he runs. And I was like, wow, he runs. He used to be heavy set. That's it. That's all I took out of high school. Great. But, like, sometimes y'all think that this is the universe is just centered around this thing right here. That guy is so important. That girl is so important. And if I don't have a relationship with that person or if I don't look the right way, I don't have the right bag, I don't have the right clothes, I don't have the right – I haven't been to the right movies, I haven't seen the right stuff, I'm not listening to the right independent music artist, whatever, then – you know, you just you haven't arrived, and you, you just get so swept up into this, and in five years, it's all useless. It's just vanity. It's complete vanity. And all the while, God is sitting on his throne, and he's saying, I deserve some attention from you. Your heart is beating because I made it, and I created it, and you are going to give yourself to me. See, right now, Sunday morning, here it is. Uh, today's 21st, right? This needs to be a day of conversion for a couple of you guys. Because you need to get to a place where you say, I, God, I confess I have lived for myself. I am selfish. I'm eaten up with myself. Do you hear the voice of God? Hear the loving, affectionate voice of God. He is running after you, and he is saying, look, his motivation for you isn't you're such a bad kid. His motivation for you is I'm such a loving God. You are welcome to come to me. I will heal you of your diseases. I will heal you of your sin. I will heal you of your brokenness. I will mend up all the hard places in your life, and I will give you, for the first time in your life, true satisfaction and joy and delight. The question is, will you go after it? He's right here. He's available for you. You know what you need to do? You just need to humble yourself. You need to bow your knee to King Jesus today, and you need to say to him, Lord, I'm tired of living for myself. Today, I'm going to serve Christ. I'm going after him. I'm going after him. I'm going after him. I'm going after him. I'm going to get him, and I'm not going to sleep tonight until I find Jesus. He's ready to receive you. You know what? You're going to have an awesome life if you do that. I'm so happy. I'm so happy as a Christian. I was miserable in high school. I hated my life. Oh, man, I mean... Just the more I got, the more I, successful I felt I was, the more miserable I got. But God's delivered me. I'm free. I'm new in Christ. Come hell or high water, it doesn't matter for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. You can have that. Come and get it. Speak to a pastor today. Go to your parents and just close with God today.
Let's do that. Let's let's make that happen. So here's my conclusion. If you do that, you'll have a life of blessing. She's been talking the whole time about a life of discipline. What you'll get if you actually do that, if you get in the word and you run to Jesus and you and you bow down and you ask God for forgiveness of your sins, you'll get a life of blessing. That's what you'll end up with. Three things specifically. The first thing is this. These are really, really short. First thing is this. You'll experience the blessing of being kept from sin. Verse 11. I have stored up your word in my heart. Why? That I might not sin against you. Isn't that great? I can't wait. I mean, that's part of what makes heaven heaven is there's no sin or the new earth. There's no sin. I mean, we're free from sin. The psalmist says that one of the blessings that comes from living a life in the word right now, friends, right now, is that you'll be protected from sin and you'll be able to avoid sin and a life in the word will protect you from sin. You can have a sampling of that right now. You want to be free from the, the tyranny, the power of that? You can have it. Second thing you'll find. If you live a life of discipline in the word, the second thing you'll find is the blessing of enjoying God. Verses 14 and 16. Verse 14, in the way of your testimonies, I will delight as in much as in all riches. Think about that. The guy who's like super excited because he's got all these things. The guy who has the testimonies of the Lord says, I rejoice just as much as that guy. In fact, we know that it's even more is what we really know. But the fact is, I will delight as much as in all riches. Verse 16, I will delight in your statutes. The psalmist knows that he must go to God if his soul is to be filled with genuine joy and satisfaction. And he knows that the temptation of riches will seek to draw him into false delight. But he concludes, verse 14, that God is my treasure. That's his conclusion. So you'll be free from sin, from the tyranny, the power of sin. You'll enjoy God. And the third thing, this is it, this is the last thing, and this is the most glorious thing, you'll get to know God. You'll have a relationship with God. You will know God, and you will actually be his friend, and you will feel the closeness of your relationship with God. That's what this text is about. This text, this has impressed me. This text is all about God. Now, what, what impressed me as I read the text this week is the use of the word you and your. Listen to this. Just count how many times you hear the words you and your in this passage. Our American youth are driven to me and me and me and me. And listen to this text, you and your, you and your. Verse 9, how can a young man cleanse his way or keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart, I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes with my lips. Declare all the rules of your mouth in the way of your testimonies. I delight as in much as in, as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes, and I will not forget your word. That's a mouthful. You and your. Do you see what's happening here? The psalmist is not coming to God's word as <clears throat> merely as a book. He sees it as access to the living God himself. And that's what he thinks about when he comes to God's word. It's not just about words on a page it's about god it's about a relationship with him it's about knowing him it's about a life that in the word is ultimately about fellowship with the creator of the universe and your savior jesus christ how amazing is this 
that God would want to bless us with himself. How amazing is it that God is offering to us himself? He loves to bless his children and protect us from sin and keep us in fellowship with him and give us joy. But most of all, he gives us himself. That is awesome. That's what this text is about. This text is not ultimately about how to keep your way pure or avoid sin or be a good Christian kid. This text is about leading you to God. You see, the word of God is not just some mechanical tool to keep you from sin, like a fence, or or a system of ethics to keep you on the right path. The word of God is a treasure to us. We value the word of God as much as riches. Why? Because God's word is a pathway to relationship with God. It opens the door to the most supremely valuable and worthy person in all creation. It opens our eyes to the richest treasure in the universe, which is God himself. Do you see the Savior? Does anybody see the Savior? you see him here? The word of God is a pathway to the word of God, Jesus Christ. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us. In the word, we are reconciled to God, and for that very reason, he is the pathway. And when I say in the word, that has a double meaning. It means in the Bible, we have a pathway to God, and in the word, Jesus, we are united to Christ. So in summary, a life in God's word is a life of discipline. Do you remember the four areas, the the heart, the mind, the mouth, and the eyes? Now consider those four things in light of Jesus. Think about this. Verse 10, discipline your heart to seek him, to seek Christ. He is your treasure. Verse 12, discipline your mind to learn from him. He's the good teacher. Verse 13, discipline your mouth to speak about him. He is your savior. And verse 15, discipline your eyes by fixing them on him, the author and perfecter of your faith. You know what? You can't do any of that on your own. You don't have the strength to do that. You're going to walk out of here and feel completely defeated, say, my heart's messed up, my mind's messed up, my mouth's messed up, my eyes are messed up. And you're going to walk out of here completely defeated. That's option one. Or option two is you can say this, Jesus already did it all for me. Jesus did it for me. And you can go out of here instead of, instead of I just got to try harder. Instead of that, you can go out of here and say, Jesus did it for me, and I'm trusting in him. How can a young man keep his way pure? So how can a young person do that? Here it is. By trusting in the only man who kept his way pure. There was a man who stored up God's word in his heart so that he would not sin. There was a man who did not wander from God's commands. That man was Jesus Christ. And so together, youth, young people, adults alike, together let's say to him, blessed are you, O Lord, with my whole heart. Oh God, take take what is so poor and... Do amazing and marvelous things through it. Just be on a rescue mission, God. Move 
with your spirit and just be doing all kinds of things we could never imagine or anticipate. Because your word is powerful. That's what we lean on. Your word is powerful. We give you praise in Jesus' name.